It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. Drop that puck! 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 Take a seat, because you've just been sent to the sin bin with your host, Recently returned from his forced deportation to Canada and that country's subsequent refusal to accept him, Paul Rogers! All right, I want to welcome everyone back to our episode this week. This is the seventh episode of the Seattle Sinbin. And I want to welcome in my co-host one more time, Otto Rogers. How are you doing? Doing great, man. Can't, can't, can't wait to get started tonight. Yeah, did you have a good week? Yeah, you know, it was really good. Uh, the weather was kind of iffy sometimes, but um, had a nice kind of relaxing uh, Easter holiday. So, um, rest and ready to go. Cool, 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 cool. All right, and I, of course, am in your host, Paul Rogers, and uh Otto and I have got a good show lined up for you tonight. Uh, we have, um, we're going to discuss a couple of different things. Uh, we're going to discuss the uh, potential expansion to of the NHL to Las Vegas. Uh, we've got Dana Lane, who is the creator of DanaLaneSports.com. He is a sports betting expert, but he's also um, tie, very tied into the landscape down in Las Vegas, the sporting landscape. He has a, a lot of contacts down there and he's going to drop some knowledge on us about um, how that's going down there regarding bringing the NHL to town. And then, so that has to do with the, with the NHL's future, hockey's future. And then we're going to end, we're going to shift into the later into the broadcast by talking to Jeff Obermeyer, who, who is going to tell us about the history of hockey. Uh, so we're in, in the Seattle region. So we're going to start by talking about hockey's future, and then we're going to shift into talking about hockey's history uh, with Mr. Jeff Obermeyer. And if you guys are unaware of who Jeff Obermeyer is, uh, he is the – well, I'm just going to call him the, the hockey historian. Um, his, his website is uh, – I think it's seattlehockey.net. Am I, is that correct, Otto? Seattlehockey.net? Yeah, that's right, seattlehockey.net. Yeah. Yeah, and, and if you guys have not visited his website, if you guys are interested in hockey and if you guys love Seattle history, you need to visit that website, and uh, there's just a ton of history there. What do you think about that, Otto? Oh, yeah, it's, it's really – he covers all the, all the teams uh, from, from the Metropolitans to, to the Thunderbirds, kind of grouping <clears> them together by different uh, franchises. He also has sections on jerseys and sections on the different arenas. So pretty much the, the, the website encapsulates all of the Seattle uh, hockey in regards to the junior and the professional professional leagues. 
Yeah. And, you know, he's also got, uh, he's compiled a, a Seattle Hockey Hall of Fame, which uh, has 25 members in it. And it's actually really interesting. But the, just the history, uh, if you even like history, maybe you're not even a hockey fan, but maybe you just like history, it's worth checking out that website. Um, so we're going we're gonna to talk um, about hockey history with him. And we're also going to talk about more recent history um, dating, I think, dating back to the mid-1960s involving Seattle's effort to bring the NHL to Seattle. It, believe it or not, this attempt that we're undergoing right now is not even even close to being the first attempt. There's just been there, there's been numerous times where the NHL has tried to come here and have not been able to get here for whatever reason. So yeah, um, all right. So, uh, but before we get to the hockey history, um, we're going to talk about potential expan- potential expansion to Las Vegas. And there is some news that came out today, Otto, regarding uh, partnership with the arena down there. What, what's going on in Las Vegas regarding their arena? So, so they had a kind of a media press day in Las Vegas on the on the uh, the grounds of the arena. They announced two founding partners in Toshiba and Coca Cola as part of their kind of plan to have about eight to ten large corporation founding partners and, and, and these partners uh, they will have you know they'll have a lot of prominent signage, luxury luxury suites, ticket access, and customized sponsorship plans um, where the company can show showcases products and services. So it looks like um, it definitely feels like they're kind of setting up, getting ready for the NHL and they've got a couple of big sponsors already. Yeah, and so if you're, if anyone really still doubts that the NHL is on its way to Las Vegas, I mean, the doubts are disappearing one by one. I mean, their arena is already being built, and now they've got these major, major sponsors, and it just seems like this thing is going to happen, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Toshiba, they signed an agreement to kind of uh, – to name the, the little the plaza as a two-acre plaza out in front of the arena, and they, they signed an agreement to to call that the Toshiba Plaza. And Toshiba is going to have access to all the digital. Um, they're going to have access to all the digital signage and d- digital uh, pieces that they're going to use Toshiba for that. And then Coca-Cola is the other sponsor they're using today. And Coca-Cola, they're having, they're 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 going to be the first. Uh, the, the beverage company to be the exclusive supplier of all sparkling and non-carbonated beverages in the in the arena. Plus, they're going to also have a lot of uh, uh, signage out in the green in the green space outside the arena. So, uh, you know, they're definitely gathering some huge corporations to to put money into this. And you can't tell me that they're just building an arena with 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 this kind of this kind of corporation sponsorship just to have concerts. I mean, it's there's got to be yeah. an anchor tenant, and, and NHL's got to be that. Yeah, and and so you said Toshiba is sponsoring. Uh, Toshiba is sponsoring the, uh, I guess the outer, kind of an outer uh, pavilion. Yeah, it's, a, it's outside yeah, the arena, a, but not necessarily the arena itself, as far well, as naming well, rights. I, I believe, yeah, they're not they're not naming. They're still looking. Uh, Las Vegas is still looking for uh, the title sponsor to name the arena. 
Uh, Toshiba, they just have an agreement as a, as a founding partner plus a separate, separate agreement to have to name the kind of the plaza into the open air, <clears throat> excuse me, it's an open air plaza where they can have entertainment and things like that. So um, it yeah. just it just looks like they're they're ramping up, you know, the yeah. getting all the it must, it must be ready. really nice. It must be really nice to be that far along in their arena project. But you know what? Um, we we're getting there in Seattle. Um, May seventh is the due date for the FEIS, and Gosh. we're we're still just kind of crossing our th- our fingers, thumbs, and toes that there's going to be some kind of NHL first option put into place. Um, I, so we're going to take a quick break and then when we come back on the line, uh, we're going to talk to Mr. Dana Lane of DanaLaneSports.com and we're going to talk more about the effort to bring the NHL to Las Vegas. Uh, but we're first, we're going to hear a word from our sponsors. And when I say sponsors, I mean people that in no way paid us to endorse our product, but we stole their audio clips from YouTube. If a premium beer is to please a lot of people, it has to be good. It has to know the way to natural ingredients. What prime quality hops to seek out? What first-rate grains to choose? It must draw upon the Pacific Northwest's pure mountain water. But above all else, it must deliver fine taste. Today, one beer does it all. Mountain Fresh Rainier, a brew apart. needed to cheer, the world watched the impossible dream come true. Volkswagen salutes the 1980 USA gold medal hockey team. Here in their new Volkswagen Vanagon, the greatest hockey team in the world. Get your free team photo and see the full line of Volkswagens at your local Volkswagen dealers. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. Drop that puck! 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 Take a seat, because you've just been sent to the sin bin with your host, Recently returned from his forced deportation to Canada and that country's subsequent refusal to accept him, Paul Rogers! All right, welcome back everyone to the Sin Bin. I am your host, Paul Rogers, and uh, we've also, we're also joined by my co-host, Otto Rogers. And on the line now, I have a gentleman by the name of Dana Lane. And uh, he runs a website called DanaLaneSports.com. Uh, he is a sports handicapper extraordinaire, but he's also very plugged into the sports team in Las Vegas. And Dana, I want to welcome you to our show. How are you doing tonight? Well, it's been an, it's an absolute pl- pleasure, and uh, I love doing these things because any chance that I get to promote the the, the potential of the NHL coming to Las Vegas, I certainly like it. All right, that's great. And um, so I, I was reading your website, and it looks like you came to Las Vegas back in 1992 uh, when mm-hmm. you were in the military, and then you just kind of latched on to things. And, and tell me tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about how you became so tied into the sports scene down there and into the handca- handicapping industry in general. 
Well, that, that that's a longer story. I mean, the, the handicapping began when I was probably very little. Um, you know, we you know we talk about all the time uh, all the time when people say, well, you know, you can't have a professional sports team in Las Vegas because of the gambling. Well, I grew up in upstate New York. Since I was five years old, I knew what gambling was. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I was introduced to me by my old family members as we were betting quarters on Yankee games, and you know, it was innocent at the time, but it really you know, grew something into in me that this was something that I really enjoyed doing. And it wasn't because of the gamble. It was because I, I, I thought I was smart enough to be able to, to overcome what the, what the Las Vegas bookmakers, uh, their opinion uh, of a specific outcome of a game. And obviously those things came with, you know, many downturns, but uh, over time that you certainly learn those lessons and you apply them just like you do in life. So it, it definitely is something that's been in my blood since I was young. And then, of course, when I got stationed in Las Vegas, well, that was the marriage made in heaven because now I could do it legally. Um, and, and I love Las Vegas because it's a city uh, and, and a community with people that have a little chip on their shoulder that are looking for a for a new chance, a new beginning. And I think that that's really important when the if the NHL comes to Las Vegas, that that team takes on the mentality of the city. And if it does, right. it will have the same success that the Las Vegas Thunder did when they took on that mentality when they first came here. Right. Now, you mentioned that when, when you were younger, you started betting and it wasn't so legal. Uh, and then when you got to Vegas, you you were in hog heaven because it, it became legal. Recently, NBA we're not ta- we're not an NBA blog, but NBA commissioner Adam Silver mm-hmm. uh, wrote a column about how he thinks that uh, sports betting should be legalized online and nationwide so that it could be controlled uh, and and things like that. What what was your opinion of what Mr. Silver had to say? Well, I appreciate what he's what he's saying, and I appreciate him opening that door to to betting becoming less underground and more above ground. I think that that is it's spread into the mainstream, especially in the last five to ten years, as an acceptable way to uh, to spend your money if you choose to do so. Um, I, I will say this: that I'm not sure anybody can legislate this uh, this aspect uh, i don't know sure people can legislate sports gambling as well as las vegas so for the united states government to do it i'm not sure i'm, I'm for that but i'm definitely for las vegas doing uh, as far as monitoring uh, something they, they've done since the beginning uh, of, of sports gambling i'm all for them being uh, the epicenter of trying to uh, make this happen but as far as legalized gambling is concerned uh, you know that's a, that's kind of a subject that I kind of go back and forth. You know, obviously it'd be better for my business, but from a personal standpoint, I'm not sure just because everybody does it, I'm not sure you just open the door and say, now it's okay. It, there's there's some ramifications to that. I don't think I, I'm in a position where I want to lead somebody to gambling that wouldn't normally get there just because now it's legal. Um, right. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that we're, we're in a uh, – we're in a society now that if you want to place a bet on any sport anywhere in the world, you certainly can do so very easily. Right. Okay. So most people that don't live in Vegas and, and I personally never been to Las Vegas. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of the stereotypes. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and most people just look at Las Vegas as a place where you go up your bachelor parties or you go down to gamble, That's um, right. or you go down to get wilds and, and sow your oats. 
Um, but you are involved with the sports culture, not just betting, but you're involved with the sports culture. Can you describe Absolutely. for people that might not have um, a good impression of the Vegas sports culture what it's like down there as far as athletics goes? Well, I can tell you that, um, you know, led by UNLV basketball, that, of course, has been on the map since probably the late 70s when they made their final four run. And, of course, the great great run by Jerry Tarkadian, who recently passed away. I mean, UNLV has constantly been in the top one, two, or three in attendance at the West Coast for, for years now. Um, that is it. When UNLV basketball is going well, it is so electric that you it, – it, I, I grew up a Notre Dame fan, and I always will be a Notre Dame fan. But my first game at the Thomas and Mack Center in 19, 1992 against Louisville was absolutely electric. It was two years after their national title run and one year after their Final Four loss to Duke. And I wanted to be part of that, and I wanted to be part of that scene. And, and, and the reason why UNLV did so well in Las Vegas is because it ran its program with a little bit of a chip on its shoulder, and the people of this city identified with it and backed it. And, uh, you know, as far as the other things that have come into town, you know, the Las Vegas 51s have been here uh, since the early 80s. The uh, ECHL has, was here for 11, 12 years. Uh, the Thunder were here for, for seven years. You know, these leagues did well. And when we talk about minor league hockey, when people say, well, you know, the Thunder drew this or you lost the Wranglers, and, and so you must not be a good market. Well, minor league sports in general only draws 4,000 to 5,000 fans. And, in fact, you know, I, I, I talk with people in Toronto all the time that feel as if they deserve a second team, but little do they understand that I know that they're not, their minor leagues are not drawn. In fact, the ECHL, which is the double-A affiliate, uh, basically the double-A level of hockey, it outdraws the AHL many more uh, a Canadian team. The ECHL has one Canadian team. So I feel as if it's not really fair to base whether or not a team is going to do well based upon their minor league success because I could give you a list of cities that have had minor league teams that have failed and moved on. Right, right. All right, so in Seattle, we've been talking about um, bringing the NHL to Seattle. Uh, It's really heated up in the last few years, but, I mean, you can Mm -hmm. find efforts dating back as far as the mid-1960s. How long has the effort to bring the NHL to Vegas been percolating? Well, professional sports in general has been percolating since, you know, the early 90s when they've been talking about trying to figure out how to build these arenas. And finally, AEG and MGM said, the heck with it, we're just going to build it ourselves. But as far as the NHL is concerned, I mean, that's going back to the early 90s as well. Because I remember when, you know, the Edmonton Oilers were having problems with, with their arena. They were talked about being, you know, moved to Vegas. And, and of course, that heated up when the Oilers, Blackhawks, and uh, I think it's, oh, the Bruins came down for a, a round robin over the weekend. And people thought, well, that's going to be the prelude to Edmonton moving here. Uh, of course, there was no place to play. But hockey has really been on the lips of the locals for, you know, probably 25 years now. Okay. Is it the same with the NBA? I would, you know, you know what's funny about that. You would think in a town that is a college basketball town that the NBA would be the overwhelming favor of the locals of 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 a team to get here. But I will tell you this: 
um, although it is not reflective of what would happen if we actually had our own team. But people are very is still very soured about the NBA All-Star game that came here. They're very soured by the way that we felt as a city that we were a little bit mistreated, not necessarily by the NBA, but by the people that came here. And I think, believe it or not, I think the NHL really agrees with the people that live here a little bit better because, you know, outside of, uh, you know, one or two interviews uh, that you might hear, um, the NHL is an extremely blue-collar uh, very respectful league. Uh, I've never heard anybody, you know, be disrespectful on an interview, uh, not many times at least. And I think that kind of mentality really goes with the with the actual people that live here. And keep in mind that five-mile road in the middle of town has very, very little to do with the two-and-a-half million residents that actually live here. Two and a half million. Wow. You you know, you don't even think of that. You just think of uh, That's right. Vegas as being that five mile strip. <laughs> so, um, so recently, I, I think it started in January, the NHL allowed um, the ownership group down there or the potential ownership group down there to begin a season ticket drive. And the goal was uh, getting 10,000 people to pay a deposit. Uh, for season tickets, and they they recently uh, apparently met that goal. And so these are casual fan. I mean, these are individuals, not mm-hmm. casinos or corporations. And now they moved on to the second phase, which is trying to get corporate support. Uh, how do you think things are going down there in that process, and what else can we expect in the near future? Well, the two well, two ways to look at it. Um, our friends up north like to point to the success of the Winnipeg Jets whenever we're talking about season ticket sales. But I think that if you, you know, took a step back and, and asked everybody, hey, look, in a month period of time or a month and a half, do you think we could sell 10,000 season tickets in a city that is perceived to be the city of sin? I think most people would say no. Well, now we're on the 11,000 and then 12,000 and 13,000. And that's not even tapping in to the 800,000 people a week that visit Las Vegas. Now, now we, we don't want an arena full of visitors, that's for sure, but you can't ignore that aspect as well. 41 million visitors come to this town every single year. That is a lot of yeah. people to draw from and to, to put into that arena. So you can look at it on, on another, uh, at another way as well. The Nashville Predators were given a conditional franchise, the condition was that you sell 12,000 season tickets. They were given a 12,000 season ticket uh, uh, goal. They sold six and got a team. Well, wow. So, so compare us to Nashville. I think we did pretty darn well. You know, yeah, and it took what, would, it, how long did it take? It took a month and a half, two months to to sell the yeah, a month, to get to the 10,000. Not not quite not quite a month and a half, but I think we've done pretty darn well. Yeah, I mean, um, look at the state right, of Florida. So, or, I'm sorry. Look at the state of California. Uh, the people that talk about well, hockey should only be in traditional hockey markets. Okay, that's fine. So, do you want to cut out California, which is arguably your most successful hockey state in the league? Yeah. You want to talk? You want to talk about Florida? Well, we can talk about the Panthers all you want, but did you know that three? of the top eight highest attended uh, attended hockey games in the ECHL, three of the top eight 
or attended by Florida residents. I, I think it has much more to do with the organization in Florida yeah. than it does yeah. the actual uh, inability to have uh, interest in the team. Yeah, I, I think any, almost anywhere you go, it's going to do have to do with how well the organization is run and if they're putting a good product right. on the court or the ice. And I, I don't think Vegas is any different than that. And, and it's definitely encouraging and exciting for you guys. I wish that we were as far along uh, on our arena as you, as you guys, guys were, but you guys are just at the cusp. It, sound, it looks like you almost got it done. Um, there's some meetings in the NHL uh, coming up uh, in coming months, and uh, mm-hmm. you are an odds maker, so I'm going to ask you directly, what are the odds that the NHL expan- uh, announces expansion to, to Las Vegas this summer? Well, I'll give you a percentage on it. Um, at this point in time, because you uh, would probably be a fool to say 100%, but uh, my gut is just 90%. And it 90%. has to be done as quickly as possible because it, you have to get this organization together. Not only do you have to get an organization together, you have to get the TV market together. And, and you know, the potential owner of this team or the owner of this team has already closed on pro- property here. He's set up charities with, with local businesses. I mean, you're not going to ask the people of Las Vegas to put down money on season tickets if you don't have a pretty good idea that that's going to happen. Because if the NHL doesn't come after you've done all this and you've asked the people to to have some blind faith, if the NHL doesn't come, they will lose this market to the NBA. Hmm. Yeah, they probably don't want to do that. Um, I'm going to bring my co-host back on. And Otto, do you do you have anything to, to ask uh, Dana? Yeah. Hi, Dana. Nice to uh, formally hey. talk to you. Nice um, to talk so, with you as well. Thank you. Um, how how important of a role do you think social media has played in generating interest in the you know in the ticket drive and Las Vegas hockey in general? It's unbelievable, and this is the one of the. I mean, you know, I'm on, I'm on social media all the time on this stuff. Uh, I right. have to put rules <laughs> on myself because I can't be on this all day, but. One of the things that the NHL that has not been talked about at all through this whole process is when the NHL announces Las Vegas, the name Las Vegas, and what the interest that that name brings to the to the National Hockey League and the sport of hockey in general, I don't know if you can put a dollar figure on it, but I think you would admit that you would be hard-pressed to find another city that would create buzz, good or bad, when, when it comes to, to the city of Las Vegas. And I think that that is one of the uh, huge benefits that the NHL is getting from this. That's right. Well, that's, that's a great point. And, um, and just one other, one other question. Um, do you think the NHL will, will announce a provisional expansion agreement at the Las Vegas NHL Awards in Las Vegas in June? You know, I would think publicly they would probably wait till June. There's two schools of thought on that. Number one, they could have two big splashes. They could have the announcement of Las Vegas, and then they could have the NHL award show and have double the attention. Or they could have this amazing NHL show with this amazing announcement. But I really feel as if things are going on uh, underneath the surface because – 
I don't think Bill Foley wants to wait another two or three months to start getting this thing going because um, if you wait till June or the official announcement, I really feel at that time that things become rushed. And you don't want to rush into this. And if you're trying to, if your goal is a 2016-2017 season, um, uh, the deadline is almost right now to start getting this done. And and I think he is uh, behind the scenes. That's that's great. Well, thanks, Dana. That's the the questions I had. Back to Paul. All right. Thanks, Otto. And, Jeff, I have one more question. I I would be remiss in my duties as as a hockey podcaster. Uh, if I've got a, a sports betting expert on the line, uh, we've got Stanley Cup playoffs starting in the near future. Who is the odds-on favorite, and what are the odds for that for that team to win the Stanley Cup? Well, right now the Rangers are the favorite to win the Stanley Cup at nine to two. Um, you know how uh, recent Presidents Trophy winners have done if they, if they go on to do that, which it looks like they will. Uh, they have a 4-2 lead over the Devils right now. Uh, the Rangers at 9-2 to two right now, while the Blackhawks are at 11-2, to two, and St. Louis is at 17-2. to two. And if you want some value, you know, for a team that might win the Pacific Division and the Calgary Flames, they're at 50-1 to one right now to win the Stanley Cup. Uh, that certainly is the biggest value that I can – See on the board, Washington's at uh, at twenty to one. Minnesota's at twenty to one. Even if you wanted to take an even longer uh, long shot, the Ottawa Senators, which are on the outside looking in right now, but could very well be in the playoffs, are also at fifty to one. And uh, they're a couple points out of the playoffs. So that that's kind of that's your favorites. You have the Rangers at nine to two, Tampa at nine to one, St. Louis seventeen to two, Chicago eleven to two, and Washington. 20 to 1. Those are kind of the top favorites that I have been looking at. All right. Well, Dana, uh, you've been great. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you and hearing about the the project in Vegas, and uh, I hope that we can have you on again in the near future and we can talk more about it. I thought you were going to ask me uh, – I thought you were going to ask me about the big uh, Thunderbird game tonight. <laughs> All right. Since you asked, what are no. the odds on that game? Well, I have no idea. See, I shouldn't have ever thought that. Up. <laughs> See, I, uh, All right. It's game. Was it game six tonight? Against Portland. Uh, it it's game six or game seven. I I honestly don't remember. Uh, but I it's, it's I think uh, Portland is is. Yeah, yeah. So Portland is in danger of uh, closing that series tonight, and and we don't want to hear about that tonight. So we're hoping Seattle pulls it out. <laughs> but Dana, well, thank you very to- much. Yeah, I do go ahead. appreciate it very much, and uh, anytime that you guys need anything, I'm always here for you. All right, thank you very much, Dana uh, Dana Lane from DanaLaneSports.com. Uh, we thank you for your time, and uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Mr. Jeff Obermeyer, who is uh, Seattle's hockey historian, and he's got some. Uh, uh, really interesting uh, history to share with us tonight. And um, once again, we're going to have going to take a short commercial break uh, with uh, sponsors who, by no means, have actually sponsored us or endorsed our product. So here we go. You know what the NHL stands for? Non-stop hockey love. Hockey love. Like when the Thrashers score a goal and those giant bird heads shoot flames 20 feet out of their mouth, you can feel the warmth fall over you. Can you feel? That's hockey love. The hockey love. Or when a player is sent to the penalty box to think about the wrongs he has done, that is the league version of sending a kid to a timeout. Done with tough 
hockey love. From Midtown to Marriott, Jonesboro to Alpharetta. Sometimes in between periods, they have little tight hockey, little kids playing hockey in their little thrashers uniforms. They try so hard, and their parents are so proud, so full of hockey love. I'm talking about hockey love! I wish I could go out there and play against them. I bet I could kick some ass. <laughs> All right. folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. Drop that puck! Drop that puck! Drop that puck! Drop that puck! in the yearbook, Jim. Uh-huh. All right. Welcome back to the Sinbin, and uh, I'm your host, Paul Rogers, once again, and we've got my co-host, Otto Rogers, somewhere in the background, uh, but on the line right now, who's been holding patiently and waiting patiently, is Mr. Jeff Obermeyer, and Jeff runs the website called seattlehockey.net, and he recently wrote a book called Seattle Totems. And it can now be pre. I think it's available in August and can be pre-ordered now through Amazon.com. Is that is that correct, Jeff? Yeah. Hey guys, good to good to be on. Yeah, I think the I think they're taking pre-orders. We're hoping for a publication date in August. So fingers crossed. Okay. All right. So uh, your your website is. And, and by the way, it is nice to meet you. I, I didn't even introduce myself to you, and we've been <laughs> exchanging we've been exchanging messages. Um, through email and, and Twitter and, and things. and um, So you have been doing SeattleHockey.net for how long now? Oh, man. Uh, you know, I'm not even sure myself, actually. Uh, it's been probably around uh, 15, 16 years, back when I barely knew what wow. the Internet was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you were a pioneer as far as uh, websites then, if you're going back you that know, far. You know, amazingly, there was, there was one guy who was doing Seattle Totem stuff online before me. So uh, he, he and I turned out to be good oh, friends. Really? And, uh, yeah, so there was a seattletotems.org. And actually, I think that site might still be active. So if you're looking for other Seattle Totems info, go out there and check it out. Cool. All right, so, so last week we had a guest on. His name is John Barr, and I, I labeled him the hockey evangelist, and I'm guessing you probably know John since everyone else in hockey in Seattle knows John. And today we've got Jeff Obermeyer, and Jeff, I'm, I'm going to label you the hockey historian, if that's okay. Is that, would that be apropos? Hey, it works for me. Yeah. Okay, so how did you, how did you get into documenting Seattle's history? What, what got you into this? 
You know, my dad My dad used to run a uh, – he owned a baseball card shop back when he could actually own a baseball card shop and, and make a living at it. And back in the 90s, and we lived in Issaquah, and um, I'd grown up on the East Coast a little bit, so I kind of followed the flyers here and there. And um, it, it took me until about the late 80s to figure out that Seattle actually had a team uh, with Thunderbirds and uh, caught my first T-Birds game in the late 80s when Nedbit and Goodall were here. And, uh, you know, as just a hockey fan, I kind of caught the bug and – uh, my wife and I, my girlfriend at the time, we, we started going to games. And um, so it really kind of got us interested in the local team, which then got us more interested into, okay, well, what was here before? And we had some, yeah. you know, since we had a baseball card shop, we saw some things came into stores. Somebody would come in with some old programs or a puck or, you know, an old stick and stuff like that. So that kind of got me interested in it. And I started to do a lot of research down at the library and uh, just started to really, really read up on Seattle's hockey history, which is which is pretty deep. Okay, so I was going to ask you how you gather all, all of your information, but I think you just told me you go to the library. You know, a lot of it did, a lot of it came from the library. I spent uh, countless dimes and quarters in the photocopying machines at the library downtown and pretty much went through and was reading all the game articles pretty much from about 19, uh, 1915 all the way through 1975 when the totems went defunct. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, right. there, um, I, I picked up programs and things like that. So, you know, some other stuff that's come my way, scrapbooks, and, you know, I've been fortunate enough to meet a couple of former players as well. So lot, lots of yeah. different uh, sources. Yeah. So you've been doing this over 15 years, and, and so I'm guessing uh, you don't sit at the computer or go to the library 40, 40 hours a week doing this, but how much time do you do you think you spend uh, on a regular basis researching and, and just – studying the history of the area as far as hockey goes? You know, most of the research was probably finished up about uh, about five or six years ago is when I probably had done the bulk of it over about a 10-year period. In, in recent years, it, it's kind of hit and miss depending on what I might happen to be interested in at the moment. And then, um, you know, having the chance to do the book on the Seattle Totems, obviously that got me back into uh, spending a lot of time going back through some old articles and old programs and photos and spending some time at the museum and things like that trying to uh, – you know, put together the material that we need for the book. So when I'm actively involved in stuff like that, it's it, it's probably taking up a good four or five, six hours a week. Okay, okay. All right, so uh, when I first started, I mean, I've been uh, following hockey for about a year now, so I'm a recent convert. Uh, but but as the, uh, the Hanson Arena proposal came up a few years back uh, and it was clear that there, that there was going to be an NHL uh, option in, in that, um, I, I started taking a little bit more of an interest, and uh, I had no idea when when all this started, when Hanson first surfaced, that Seattle had such a history. And it, it seems to all go back to the Seattle Metropolitans uh, as our biggest claim to history and the Stanley Cup that they won back there. Tell us a, lo- a little bit about the history of the Seattle Metropolitans. When did they start? Uh, how, many, how long did they last? And just tell us a little bit about the Metropolitans. Sure. So the the Metropolitans played in the Pacific Coast Hockey Association, which kind of got to start uh, late 1911, early 1912, when the Patrick brothers moved out to uh, Vancouver, and they had some money from from the the money that they made in the in the lumber business, and they had been hockey players in Eastern Canada and decided they wanted to build some indoor ice arenas in the Northwest and start a league, which. When you think about it, what Vancouver, Seattle area was like in 1911, 1912, I mean, there really wasn't a lot going on. And the idea that you're right. going to build an indoor ice arena is, is, is pretty pretty extravagant, really. Um, but they had the financing, and um, 
So they, they started the league initially around that period of time. And then Seattle stepped in in 1915. Uh, the Metropolitan Building Company was basically doing a lot of what we would consider the core part of downtown right now. Some of the great old buildings that are still there were built right around this era. And uh, one of the buildings that they put up was, was an ice arena, a roughly 4,000-seat Seattle arena. And hence the name Metropolitans of the team is from the Metropolitan Building Company. Oh, the so Metropolitan Building Company. Yep, yep. They're actually oh, okay. See, I, I just picked up an, I just picked up a piece of information that I that I didn't have even before we we talked. So, um, I I just figured they they were called the Metropolitans because Seattle was a was a metropolitan area. But you're saying it was the the building company. Yeah, I mean, as near as I can tell, it was it was tied in directly to the fact that it was a metropolitan building company doing that work downtown. They built the arena. Um, and obviously the arena was, was necessary. You, you can't play outdoor hockey in, in Seattle on any kind of a consistent basis. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you couldn't in 1915, and you certainly can't this winter. So, um, no, no. you know, putting up a, a state-of-the-art facility like that was, was really the key, and, and it allowed, you know, it allowed the Patricks and um, the others out here to have a, a league that, you know, was generally had three to four teams in it over the course of about 15 years, um, went as far south as Portland at times. And then up into Canada, sometimes we're teams in Victoria, um, obviously Vancouver, and uh, things kind of spread out from there. So fortunately, the team was really successful, and it, it was only in their second year that they actually qualified to play for the Stanley Cup, which was a challenge yeah. trophy at the time. And uh, so in 1917, they earned the right to host the Stanley Cup here in Seattle. Uh, the reason that they earned the right to host it is because it alternated on coasts each year. And it, 1917 just happened to be the year that it was supposed to come out west. Uh, so the Montreal Canadiens got on the train, took the long train ride across the prairies, and uh, spent some time in Seattle and kind of made it uh, ground zero for the professional hockey world for, for a couple of weeks in March. And the NHL really didn't exist at this point, did it? Yeah. It, the, so 1917, the year that the Metropolitans played for the Cup, was the last year that the NHA existed, the National Hockey Association. And then that's the league that more or less sort of became the NHL the following year. There were some shenanigans that went on behind the scenes and um, some some questionable dealings and such like that that went on within the league. But the NHA sort of became the NHL the following year. Okay. And in this league that the Metropolitans were in, uh, how many games a year would they typically play? Uh, you know, I'd have to go back and take a look. But, I mean, you're talking about seasons that are generally running about 30 to 35 games. Um, okay. You know, travel was obviously an issue. You know, fortunately, the locations were close, but everything was by car or by train. Um, but, you know, frankly, the game put a lot of wear and tear on the players. It was not uncommon at that time for every player on your team to play all 60 minutes. Really? Uh, yeah. Because so they, when you they think about didn't that, have that's, enough that's players? A, or? No, it's just that there were no active substitutions. So, I mean, you, you might have had a sub or two on the bench, but um, – the way the game was structured was obviously much different than today. Um, at that time, you, you know, they hadn't invented – well, they hadn't invented – they hadn't allowed forward passing to take place yet. So, really, it was almost like a oh, rugby wow. situation where the passing was backwards. You know, your defensemen would generally stay on the defensive end of the ice. Your forwards generally stayed on the offensive end of the ice. So, there wasn't quite as much of the, the up-and-down style of hockey that we're used to seeing today. So, they, they underwent kind of a, a similar evolution to what football did with the forward pass then. Yeah, in a lot of ways they did, and and um, during the years when the Pacific Coast Hockey Association would would play against the National Hockey Association in the NHL and the Stanley Cup, 
the NHL and the NHL, NHA played with a different set of rules than, than they did out West. So the teams would actually have to alternate between sets of rules every other game um, so that nobody would have an unfair advantage. Right. 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 Um, all right. So they built this 4,000 seat arena um, in downtown Seattle and you have a picture of it, of at least the exterior of it on your website uh, mm-hmm. But what would that? What would the environment have been like in a in a stadium like that? Would it have been all bench seating? Would they have had individual seats? Uh, would they have had concession stands? What What would it have been like if if we were able to go back in history and walk into a building like that? You know, it's actually a good question because I haven't seen um, in the stuff that I've read too much as far as the specifics of the arena in terms of in terms of that. I, I would, from what I've seen, I'm thinking you've got a a certain amount of reserved seating, which is going to be what they would have called box seating or, you know, more standard actual individual seats. And then you would have had some more general admission or bench seating as well. Um, one thing that you definitely would have had was um, uh, an astounding amount of smoke because you would have had a lot of people in there smoking cigarettes and cigars in the arena, uh, which would not have been as well ventilated as what we're used to seeing today. I know that uh, in games that happened to be played later in the season, especially in March, uh, a lot of times there would be almost like a fog that would hang over the ice. Um, you know, from just between the artificial ice plant and then you throw the smoke on top of it, which would then sink because of the colder air, and then you're just really not cycling air through there. So people would tend to dress up for the games. You'd see a lot of guys in shirts and ties most likely, Um, a lot of them chewing on cigars and having smokes, and uh, not quite sure, you know, from the concession standpoint, though. I don't know if they would have been eating some hot dogs and maybe maybe drinking some beer or if they might have had a little flask in their pockets. I'm not sure. Yeah. So with with the lack of outside air circulation, that could have possibly factored into the decision to cancel uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs that one year. What was it, a flu epidemic that happened? Yeah, in 1919, you know, you've got the end of World War One at that point and the Spanish flu. I mean, the Spanish flu was sweeping the world, um, you know, in 1918, 1919. And by the time it got out to Seattle um, was right around the time that the Stanley Cup was taking place second time in three years that Seattle had hosted it. Uh, Montreal is again in town for it. And when a bunch of the Montreal players and some of the Seattle players as well came down ill with the flu, public health authorities just decided they had to cancel it. Um, it's not it's not quite a flu epidemic the way that we're used to thinking about it today. I mean, this is a flu that killed millions of people worldwide, um, probably closer to tens of millions of people worldwide. And uh, Joe Hall from the Montreal Canadiens actually passed away in a Seattle area hospital. Um, as a result of the flu that he caught while they were out here. So, you know, unfortunately that, that series had to be canceled. And for quite a long time, that was the, the quote-unquote last Stanley Cup series to have been canceled, I think, until one of the strike-shortened seasons uh, a few years back. Yeah. All right, so the team, I, it was in 1917 that won the Stanley Cup. Uh, tell me a little bit about that team. Who was Who would have been the star player that people would have come to see on that team? You'd have had a few of them actually, because you know you've got um, you've got a number of actually Hall of Famers on that team. So Frank Voiston is your captain. Um, he's the guy that's probably the most recognizable figure. He later became a coach in Seattle. Um, it was really kind of a fixture in the local hockey hockey community. Uh, Jack Walker was another Hall of Famer. Uh, Walker's often credited as being the guy who invented the hook check. Uh, whether or not that's true, or if that's just kind of an urban legend in hockey, I don't know, but. Uh, you know, Walker was another guy who had already had a professional hockey career before coming out to Seattle and, and was certainly a mainstay with the Metropolitans. Um, Happy Holmes was the goaltender, another Hall of Famer. So, I mean, you can see the trend here. You've got a lot of really talented guys on this team. 
Uh, Bernie Morris would have been the real, um, the number one goal scorer on the team. Uh, I, I believe he put in 14 goals in the, in the finals against uh, Montreal, um, which was you know, obviously a pretty outstanding performance. And then you would have had Bobby Rowe on the blue line, real short guy, tough as nails. Um, later on, after his uh, playing career was over, actually he used to coach the University of Washington team when he was here in Seattle as well, and then eventually moved down to Portland and uh, helped really establish the professional game down there as well. So certainly uh, a number of uh, number of big name players and a number of guys that were really mm-hmm. you know well known at the time. Okay. All right. So um, the Metropolitans seem to be the team that that uh, people who know about Seattle's hockey history uh, talk about the most. Another name that seems to pop up is the the team that you just wrote the book about. And that's the Seattle Totems. Tell me a little bit about their history and you know when they when they came into be and how long they lasted and everything and just talk about okay. their history a little bit. So the totems, you know, if you go into the way 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 back machine, the totems date back to about 1944, with the the birth of the Seattle Ironmen. So that was a team that was actually sponsored by the Isaacson Ironmen Shipworks. Uh, during World War II, you had a lot of guys coming out here looking for work, and a lot of those guys played hockey. So Seattle's City Hockey League, its amateur league, had a lot of uh, corporate sponsor teams of actually really high-class hockey, guys that had perhaps been professionals and now they were working in the shipyards. Eventually, that developed into the Pacific Coast Hockey League, so a more professional West Coast, uh, well, I shouldn't say professional, technically amateur. When we say amateur, it's not like we think of amateur today. Guys are still getting paid some money. Some guys are still getting paid a little bit more money than other guys. Um, but it's not quite a fully professional league at that point. So through the late 40s, um, and um, you, you've kind of got this, this, this quasi-amateur, quasi-pro league that plays on the West Coast, which then eventually goes professional fully at the end of the 40s. And uh, so the Ironmen are here in Seattle. Um, they're playing at uh, the old Mercer Street Arena, which is still there, although you can't play hockey there anymore. And then from there, that team actually became – they changed their name to the Seattle Bombers. Um, only the Bombers for a couple of years. And then, frankly, Seattle had kind of gotten to the point where the teams had been not very good for quite some time. And the Bombers found themselves in a situation where they were only drawing, say, 1,700, 1,800 fans a game. And economically, they couldn't make it in the pro game anymore. So they asked for permission to take a year off. And the league granted it to them. And fortunately for all of us here in Seattle, um, the president of the league at that time, Al Leader, also happened to be living in this area. And he also happened to be the uncle of a young player who played for the Bombers named Guile Fielder. Guile was an up-and-comer, uh, had been uh, Rookie of the Year in the Pacific Coast Hockey League, uh, Rookie of the Year in the American Hockey League. And so Seattle takes its one year off to kind of regroup financially. And when they come back as the Seattle Americans in 1955-ish, uh, Leader made sure that his nephew, Guile Fielder, the superstar, uh, came back to Seattle. And so Seattle got back a lot of its original players and was able to start building a decent winning franchise. So they were the Americans for three years in the, in the late 50s, got bought out by a new group in 1958, renamed themselves the Totems, and won the championship that year, and the rest was kind of history. They really were uh, the mainstays of Seattle sports during the winter throughout the 60s and into the early 70s, other than, you know, you had UW football and you had the Seattle Totems. Okay. And, and so when they became the Totems, um, try to compare them for us, if you will. Uh, we've got the WHL 
uh, league in Seattle and Tri-Cities and uh, Everett, Spokane, Portland. Uh, how would the quality of the level of play for the totems um, compare to what you might see in the WHL? So early on in the, in the totems period, you, you know, the, the NHL at that point only had six teams. So really you're talking about six teams of roughly 18 players per team. There's only a very small number of guys playing NHL caliber hockey. So your two biggest minor leagues at that point were the Western Hockey League out here and then the American Hockey League on the East Coast. Um, the, the Western Hockey League would have anywhere between five and eight teams, kind of depended from year to year. Some teams would come in, some teams would drop out. Um, you know, the AHL was kind of the same thing. So at that point, you're talking about a league that's really very much like we would consider AAA baseball today, something like the Pacific Coast League, where hey, some of these guys had played in the NHL, and now they've, they're kind of on their way down, and they're still playing professionally. Some of them were really young guys who were on their way up and were going to move into the NHL eventually. And then you had some guys like Fielder who said, you know what, I'm good enough to play in the NHL, but I can be a superstar in the WHL and actually make more money playing quote-unquote minor league hockey in Seattle than I could playing on the third line of Detroit, so I'm going to stay here. So the caliber so of hockey sounds, was actually really, really high. So it sounds like it might be what you'd have with today's AHL? Yeah, I think that would be comparable. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's a little bit different in that you're going to find a lot more of uh, guys that had played an NHL career and then had kind of worked their way back down. I don't know if we're going to see that as much in the AHL today. Uh, that's going to be more guys maybe on uh, injury rehab assignments and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, you're talking about the very next tier down from the NHL. So um, definitely an excellent class of professional hockey. Okay. All right. So as we talked a little bit about earlier, uh, Chris Hansen surfaced a few years ago wanting to build an NHL and NBA and NBA caliber arena. Um, we're waiting on May 7th for the FEIS to come out for that. And then we're all kind of hoping that uh, an NHL first modification can be done to the MOU in some way so we can snag a team. But this certainly is not the first time Seattle has tried to bring the NHL to Seattle. And it's not the first time that the NHL has tried to come to Seattle. Uh, can you give us a little history about the the effort to bring that league to Seattle? It started back in the 60s, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, the effort in the 60s was a little bit more um, casual, for lack of a better word. I don't know that there was ever really a serious opportunity. Though there had been talks in the 60s um, when the NHL was getting ready to go into its first round of expansion and going from six to 12 teams, there had actually been talk of absorbing the entire Western Hockey League as – basically the Western half of the NHL. They would have brought in six teams from the WHL, had the NHL existing teams, made it a 12-team league, and, and it all would have been good. That's not the way it ended up working out. Um, you know, Oakland and L.A. went into that league, but there were some also some other teams that were brought in at that time. Um, so that really didn't quite play out. Now, later, you know, in, in the mid-'70s is when things got a lot more interesting and when, really when Seattle got a lot closer to getting a team. Um, technically speaking, uh, the Seattle Seattle Totems ownership group had been awarded an NHL franchise in 1970. I want to say 1973 or 1974 is when the actual announcement was made. And the reasons that the team didn't come here are a bit they're a bit nebulous. If you talk to the folks that were involved at the time, um, they have some pretty strong feelings about the fact that they weren't dealt with fairly, and that perhaps the NHL didn't want a team here. Uh, if you read the newspaper articles at the time. There's certainly some implications that the, the group here simply couldn't come up with the money. 
So where the truth lies, I'm not actually sure. I can't say for sure. But really that contributed directly to the demise of the Western Hockey League in 1974 and then the totems a year later in 1975. Um, there was another effort in around 1990 during the same class when the Tampa Bay Lightning came in. And um, the Ackerley family actually owned the rights to the expansion franchise at that point, or I shouldn't say the rights, but they had purchased uh, the ability to basically put in a bid for an expansion team. And unfortunately for us in Seattle, they had actually, they decided to pull that bid at the last minute, um, never really offering a full explanation as to why, but um, because they actually had the rights to the Seattle market at that time, being able to pull that back, kind of put a, put a kibosh on anybody else being able to get a team at that point. So that was really our last great opportunity to get a team out here up until recently. And, and regarding that, that Ackerley uh, quote unquote effort, uh, I, I think I even read on your website that, uh, or maybe it was one of the newspaper accounts that um, there was a couple separate efforts and then Ackerley uh, kind of merged the efforts with a different group. And then he basically uh, excused himself to talk to the NHL separately during the meeting and quit and pulled out like in the middle of the NHL meeting and uh, the other part of the group was stunned. It, are, are you familiar with that part of the story? Or Yeah, so you know, one of the two key figures in, in the non-accurately part of that equation was Bill McFarland. And um, Bill McFarland had a pretty long and illustrious history here in Seattle. He p- played professionally here all the way back to the days of the Seattle Americans. So uh, I think he played his first season here out 1957-ish, um, won a championship with the Totems, then stepped behind the bench and won two championships as a head coach for the Totems, uh, then went on to the World Hockey Association where he was a part owner of the Phoenix Roadrunners and was eventually the president of the World Hockey Association, uh, was also one of the guys who was behind bringing the Russian national team here for a couple of uh, exhibition games. But So he was really well-known in Seattle hockey circles. He was an attorney, super smart guy, uh, had the honor of meeting him once really just an excellent human being. And so he was really part of that group that um, was ready to put together the press. They put together the presentation. They were down in Florida for the NHL meetings. They were ready to present. And as Bill told it to me at the time, you know, we're sitting in the waiting area the guy from the NHL board of governors comes out, says we're ready to go. And uh, Ackerley said, Hey, I want to address the board individually first. Walked into the room. And a few minutes later, the guys from the governor board of governors came out and said, he just withdrew your bid and went out a different door. And that oh, was goodness. the first they'd heard of this happening. So um, yeah. they still went ahead and gave their presentation, but at that point they had no legal rights. They, there was nothing that they really could do to bring the team here. And they had the finance. Yeah, and, yeah, and accurately, as I recall, also opposed uh, any when, – when they were trying to get the key arena remodel, he opposed any modification that would have made the arena NHL-friendly, as I recall. Um, so – yeah, it just seems like he torpedoed that whole thing, which is a shame. And we might not be in the in a situation we're in with the Sonics right now had that not happened. But uh, I'm going to bring in my co-host uh, Otto Rogers to to talk to you. Otto, you got any questions for Mr. Obermeyer? Yeah, just a just a couple quick questions. Hi, Jeff. Um, nice to uh, meet you. Be the person behind that great website. Hey, thanks, Otto. Uh, yeah, so my first question, have you ever thought about doing maybe a larger scale historical project on the U.S. division or the WHL? 
Well, I do have a self-published book uh, called Emerald Ice that I put out uh, myself, obviously, and, and it, it covers the 1915 to 1975 era. So that takes you all the way from the Metropolitans through the Totems. You know, the, the T-Birds came here in 1977 as the Seattle Breakers, and frankly, that would be the ideal volume two of, of um, you know, kind of the research that I've done. But frankly, if I could find a commercial publisher interested in actually putting it out, uh, I'd be... I'd be absolutely thrilled to do it. But uh, at this point, I know how much time and effort it takes to uh, be able to do a self-published project. And I'm, I'm just not, uh, I'm not ready to, I'm not re- quite ready to tackle that one yet. All right. This is one, one, uh, one quick final question. Um, who is your favorite, who is your favorite T-bird to watch regardless of position? <laughs> now that's a tough question because you've got so oh. many talented players. Um, <laughs> So I'm, I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to give you a couple. Um, okay. In terms in terms of offensive talent, I, I you know I, we my wife and I had season tickets from roughly 1991 through uh, probably about 2009 or so. And frankly, for my money, Patrick Marlowe, um, nobody could touch him. I mean, there were some brilliant offensive players that we had. I've seen some amazing things on the ice, but watching Patrick Marlowe as a 17 year old was absolutely phenomenal. And you know, I think it, it shows in the fact that. San Jose picked him number two overall in the draft and then brought him to the NHL in what should have been his 18 year old season here in Seattle. Um, he had the quickest first step of anybody I'd ever seen. He, he frankly made it look like he wasn't working that hard while he was out there dominating people. Right. If we're going to, if we're going to talk defensive players, um, you know, frankly, Brendan Witt was uh, absolutely dominant. Uh, you know, the WHL in the early nineties was kind of a different league than it is today. I mean, it was, it was a brawl fest. Um, every game was going to have a lot of fighting in it, and Brendan Witt could throw down with the best of them. Plus, he played some pretty solid defense and played some pretty solid defense in the NHL for, for quite a period of time, too. So those are probably my two favorites in terms of position players. Um, you know, for goaltenders, I was a huge Chris Osgood fan when he was here. Uh, I've never seen a goaltender do as much damage with his stick to uh, opposing teams' ankles and knees. And uh, so, you know, we, we've, we've gotten we've been fortunate enough to see a lot of pretty cool stuff on the ice over the years. Yeah, definitely. Those guys were there's some really great great talent and and Marlowe, he's still going strong. So I mean, that's definitely one of the best players that I've seen play. Yeah, I mean he, he really was phenomenal. To see him play shorthanded in particular, I mean it was just it, it really was like seeing a professional quality player playing with, you know, a bunch of seventeen and eighteen year old amateurs. I mean he did look like a man among boys out there. Well thanks thanks for answering my questions, Jeff. Hey, no problem, Otto. All right. It. All right. All right. So I have one more question for you, Jeff. Um, as someone who studied the local history of hockey and, you know, I, I was even surprised today. I was reading your website and found out there was a, a hockey team way back when called the Seahawks, which I'm guessing was the one of the reasons the football team was named what it is now. But um, we at SonicsRising.com, we have uh, a fairly – uh, frequent debate about if we get an NHL franchise, what should that should that team be called? And uh, there's been all kinds of suggestions. Um, some want to call it Kraken. Some want to call it the the uh, Mammoths. Some want to call it the T-Birds. Um, but then uh, I, I would say most people that I've encountered want to call it the Metropolitans or the Totems. So, as someone tied into the history like you are, do you have a preference about what any team should any team should be called? You know, I mean, if it was up to me, I would go with the totems. I, I just think, to me, that's that's much more of a, 
I, I think there's a couple of benefits to naming the team the totems. One is you still have a whole generation of hockey fans who went to the totems games. And those are a lot of those folks are taking their, their kids to, and their grandkids to T-Birds games, to Silver Tips games. They've moved to Portland. They're in Spokane. They're in Tri-Cities. They're still hockey fans today. And I think they would love to see the green and white back on the players again. And the second part of that is, that, you know, the totems really there, – there's kind of a, con- a continuity between the totems to the Thunderbirds. You've got that kind of Native American logo. Um, you've got the Native American heritage tied into it. Um, you know, obviously in today's day and age, the, the idea of uh, appropriating Native American terminology or symbi- you know, symbiology and stuff like that has become a little bit more of a dicey issue. So, um, you know, that's something that would have to be kind of addressed and tackled and, and be handled respectfully. But for, for my money, the, the totems are, are really um, are, are, would really be the, the perfect fit. Okay. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you for all the great work you've done. Um, it is a treasure trove of information for someone like me who's just learning the game. And uh, um, I'm, I'm going to try and get my hands on that totems book of yours so I can learn more about that team. Uh, but aside from that, I want to thank you for coming on tonight, and uh, I hope we can do this again soon. Um, so uh, just thank you for being with us tonight. Anytime you want, guys. I appreciate it. All right. Okay, that was Jeff Obermeyer, and uh, he is the the brains behind SeattleHockey.net, which uh, documents all the history of Seattle hockey that you could ever possibly want to read. Um, and we're going to take a quick break, get another word from our quasi-sponsors, and when we come back, Otto and I are going to talk about what we just heard, and we're going to talk about some other things. So uh, here is a word from our sponsors. folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. Drop that puck! Drop that puck! Take a seat, because you've just been sent to the sin bin with your host, 
is a college graduate. We're all Eastern, weren't you, Ned? That's what it said in the yearbook, Jim. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, welcome back to our final segment of the Seattle Sinbin podcast tonight. I am your host, Paul Rogers, and my co-host is with us as well, Otto Rogers. And we've got just a few minutes left to go in the show. But, Otto, what did you think of Jeff Obermeyer and what he had to say? What stood out to you? I think the biggest thing that stood out to me was just how you know impressive of a of a hockey history that Seattle actually has, you know, all, all the different names and all the different players and all the, all the different, you know, just all the different kind of scenarios with, with the, uh, the president of the uh, Pacific hockey league out here and then how the, 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 the Ironmen had to, or the bombers had to like stop playing for one year and they came back at the totems and, and just, just all the history uh, specifically added with that. And, um, the fact that uh, the Metropolitans were, was named after the building company that built the arena. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know that. I had that no crazy. idea. <laughs> I had no idea that that was the case. And I was actually I was surprised. Like, I was expecting him to say he want, he preferred the NHL team of the, Metro, uh, the Metropolitans, but he seemed more tied to the totems. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I, I'm just going to put this out there. I think, I think that, you know, the majority of people – you know, just my feeling, what I've seen, that the majority of people that follow hockey in the region, that know hockey in the region, that they're they would be more supportive supportive of the of the of the totems. And um, we have, I feel, sometimes people kind of latch on to the Metropolitans because of the Stanley Cup. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. You can and, honor, uh, what do you think? You know, no, go ahead. You can, I mean, you can honor the Metropolitan name, um, you know, just like how Vancouver does it with having a retro jersey night or wearing a patch. So, I mean, there's, there's ways to honor that history without having the name. I mean, that's my right. feeling. Right. Okay. All right. What do you think what, – what do you take from the interview we had with our first guest, Dana Wayne? What stood out to you in what he had to say? I think, you know, he had – you know, just uh, his uh, thoughts on kind of the community, uh, the kind of mentality the the team kind of has have has to have. Uh, you know, needing a kind of chip on your shoulder. Uh, yeah, that's what kind of me as well. Mm-hmm. And just really connect with with the community, and and it, it seems like Las Vegas has, you know, they have some you know hockey history with with the minors with the ECHL. And some other other kind of minor hockey league teams. So it's not hockey. You know, I didn't I didn't really know about that until I started kind of researching it. But it looks like that Nevada does have a lot of minor league hockey history. So uh, and and it's probably something that you know they could really get into. Okay. All right. So we touched briefly on NHL team names, and of course that's a a very popular, uh, continual, <laughs> almost perpetual debate at SonicsRising.com. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have come to favor uh, the mam- uh, naming the team the Mammoths um, after the archaeological find that was made in the last couple of years. Uh, of right. a, I guess it was a mammoth tusk. Um, right. And then, then we have the old standbys of the Metropolitans and the Thunderbirds um, and the Totems. Um, 
what, which one do you currently favor, Otto? Hi. If if if, if we're if we were going to look at kind of more of a historical or, or regional, you know, um, name, I I'm I'm with Jeff. I like totems. I, I okay. Um, for for the historical aspect, with for the the aspect that ties into the region and and our you know our culture here, and and also the for the fact that you know we wouldn't be taking that away from from a you know a major junior kind of hockey team. I know there's like a there's like an A league team that has Seattle Totem Juniors, but um, mm-hmm. I you know I don't want to take I don't want to take the name Thunderbirds away from the Seattle T Birds. Um, All right. And the Metropolitan, it just it just doesn't sit. It just doesn't sit well with me. <laughs> I'm not gonna be. Right. I'm gonna be honest. Okay. So you said if we if we take historical into account, um, first yeah. of all, what what if we didn't take this the history into account, and uh, what would you name it then? And do we and should we take the history into account when we name the team? If if I was going off off of just a non historical aspect of name, I like the Kraken. I'm not. I'm. Okay. You know, I'm not gonna lie. I, I like. I like how you can market that. It's. It's. It's something that you know from the seas. We have. We have a, a big connection. Uh, obviously, this region has a big connection with with, with the sea, um, and I. It just. It. It. Lo- it looks good. It feels good. You know. It. It just. It, I. I just really like that name. But. Um, that would be that would be my preference if we were kind of going away from the historical aspect of, of of an NHL name. Okay. Do you want to go away from the historical aspect, or do you think we should stay with the historical aspect? I I really really want to stick with the totems. I know Vancouver they have they have some of that with with their with their logo. They have some of the uh, you know the the totem aspect of it with the with the the orca. Um, but I really, uh, I really wanted, I, re- I would really push for the totems, um, and, and hope to kind of, you know, work, you know, work with the local Native American groups, um, you know, to see if there's anything, anything we, you know, that we could do to kind of make that happen, you know, to be as, res- like Jeff said, be as respectful, respectful as we can, um, in that process, you know, and, and if it came out that, you know, it, it, it there wasn't a way we could kind of do it respectfully. Then, then you know, then we can kind of reevaluate. You know, you know our options. But you know, totems would be my preference. Okay. All right. Uh, we're actually running a little later than we normally do. Um, so I'm I'm going to br- go ahead and bring this final segment to a close. I want to thank everyone for joining us. I want to thank uh, our guests tonight. I want to thank Dana Lane. Uh, from DanaLaneSports.com. I want to thank um, Jeff Obermeyer from SeattleHockey.net. A lot of information delivered tonight. And uh, I want to thank my co-host Otto for joining me as usual. And uh, last but not least, I want to thank you, the listener, for coming on and listening to what we have to say. Otto and I really enjoyed doing this, and and we couldn't do it unless the support was there from you guys. So we want to thank you for that. And we will be back next week. Um, I hope you all have a great night, and let's get hockey, let's get the NHL to the city of Seattle. Have a great week, everybody.
joining us in the Sin Bin with Paul Rogers. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.